welcome to Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Okay, friends, if you uh, have your Bibles, I want to invite you to turn to the book of Exodus, chapter 1, and we will be there. Uh, We're starting a new sermon series today, and I am so excited. I feel like a kid in a candy store, Uh, except earlier this week I was ill. I did not feel like a kid in a candy store. I felt like death, but um, I am well again and uh, ready to, uh, yeah, you know, I I feel like I bring my backpack every week, and I get to sort of take everything out and say, look what I found. So it's like show and tell for me, guys, every week, every week. I'm, I'm excited about this series for a couple of reasons. One, because this story, the story of Moses, taps into, of course, a larger story, which is the story of the Exodus. The Exodus is a story of stories, you know? It's one of the great ones. Uh, it has stood the test of time. The rabbis say that really this isn't an event that happened, but it's an event that happens again and again and again. That it's something that humans no matter where they've come from or what people group they are, the Exodus is a story that you can relate to. So it's one of the big ones. Uh, I'm excited about it for that reason. The, uh, the other reason I'm excited about it is because I, I have an increasing fascination with this guy, Moses. I'm developing a bit of a man crush on him. And uh, I love this guy. I just think he is so real and honest, he's authentic. He would totally fit at Awaken. Um, right there, authenticity, get it? Man, come on, second hour, wake up, wake up. Thank you, thank you very much, appreciate it. I'll be here all week. Um, no, he, he's honest, he's, he's authentic, he sort of wears his heart on his sleeve. He's sort of whimsical and ironic, and, and yet at times he's just stricken with fear, like paralyzing fear. Anybody been there? Yeah, I can relate to that. Uh, and then there, there are these brief moments of, of brilliance, you know, courage and strength and beauty. Uh, so I, I, I'm excited to sort of dive into what it would look like um, to, to really live in this guy's life for a little while. And at the end of Moses' life, Deuteronomy chapter 34, there is a moment that is so beautiful and intimate and uh, that God and Moses have, and I think if my life could look anything like Moses and, and my death could look anything like Moses's, I would be a happy guy. So I'm pretty excited about this series. Um, before we really jump into what I want to tackle this morning, I want to say just two things. Uh, one is I'm in this series, I'm not really sure how long we'll be here. Uh, it'll be at least probably uh, eight weeks or so, if not longer. And I'm gonna, I want to provoke you a little bit in this series. Not like a buzzing gnat around your head or a mosquito or something annoying or bothersome, but rather, uh, lovingly, I want to push you. I want to push you and prod you and invite you to hear this story in a different voice. I don't know about you, but if you grew up around the church, you've probably heard a lot of these stories about Moses. You know, crossing the Red Sea, born, you know, the the basket, the whole infanticide thing with Pharaoh, Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston, right? We, we know these stories. And yet, I have been invited into this community of people who are reading the text in a very different way. And I'm telling you, gang, it has opened up all kinds of things to me and made the reading of the Bible uh, far less boring than it was before, uh, which I don't know if I'm the only one in the room that can relate to that. Uh, but it's, it, it's enlivened these stories to me. And so I want to push you a little bit I'm not going to say things in the spirit of thus saith the Lord or thus saith the preacher guy. 
that's not really my style, and it really doesn't fit, I think, this, the tone and the, and the sense, sensibility of this series. Uh, I'm going to ask a lot of questions. I'll pose a lot of possibilities. I will say things like, I want to invite you to consider the possibility that dot, dot, dot. Or uh, I want to suggest to you that the text might be asking this question. Or what does it mean to say dot, dot, dot. And if you're paying attention, this requires a person to engage, right? If there's a question asked or, or something offered, it's not like you come and you really receive religious goods and services at Awaken and then you leave and you just do whatever I tell you to do. No, 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 no. I would not recommend that at all to any of you because uh, I don't know what I'm doing half the time. What I would recommend and what I would invite you to is to really wrestle with the story, to wrestle with the text, to be a person who engages with what's being offered and who says maybe, you know what, I'm not sure that I buy that. That's okay, totally fair game. Or, ah, you might want to explain that a little bit better next time. Okay, fine. Or, huh, never thought of it that way. Interesting, great. And then my hope, my prayer is that you begin to work this out in the, in the smaller communities that you're a part of, whether that's a life group or something else. Is that fair? So I want to push you a little bit to hear the text a little bit differently. The other thing I'll say before we jump in is I, w I want to be your teacher at Awaken. Um, if you've been around Awaken over the last couple of months, you know we're in the midst of a transition with some staff that have left. And, and, uh, and I personally feel like I'm very much uh, amidst something, that God is up to something in me. This little video uh, that we'll watch each week, it ends with this question of will you cross over? The word Hebrew in Hebrew means to cross over. God's people all through the Bible are invited to these threshold moments where the door is open. Do you remember those cars that used to say, the door is ajar? Remember that? The, God's people, back up, forget I said that. God's people are invited all through the scriptures to step to these thresholds and the door is open to them and they're invited to cross over. You know, Jacob, as he's going back to visit his brother for the first time, where does he find himself? at the river Jabbok, and what does he do? He sends his family over, and he wrestles with an angel, and then he himself has to cross over, and his name is changed, and he's never the same. All through the story, we find this. So, I feel personally like there's an invitation to me. I mean, I'm, I'm 37. Uh, I'm younger than a lot of the people in this room. This has been the case for me most of my career as a pastor, and I think in honesty, I've lived in the shadow of that fear for a long time. Maybe I'm not smart enough. Maybe I'm not good enough. Maybe I'm not good-looking enough. Maybe I, I don't have the right experience or I'm not mature enough. And um, so this is my coming out party, friends, and you're all invited. Uh, I feel like, for me, I want to be your pastor, and I want to be a teacher. And this is part of me discovering a bit of who I am and my name. And so uh, humbly and faithfully, I hope to take what I'm learning and what's being invested in me and poured into me and give it back to you as a gift. So, are you ready? Okay, great. I'm glad you are. Exodus chapter 1. Stand, if you will. We'll read the text that we'll study today. If you can, starting in verse 1, it says this. These are the names. Pray with me. God, as we enter this experience and this story and this person's life, Moses. It's my prayer that you would be very, very distinctly 
present to us in ways that are unmistakably you, that they would be beyond coincidence or happenstance or hunches, but it would just only be explained by God's presence. And so teach us, draw us out of our shadows and the darkness that we live in, the things that we hide. Invite us into the light where you are present and present to us. I pray in the strong name of Jesus and all God's people said, amen. You can have a seat. Shortest text ever preached right there, baby. (laughs) I've been waiting for Sunday all week. I told Laura, I'm like, do you want to hear the text? These are the names. And she's like, okay, that's it. So this guy, I, uh, I, I knew once, my brother was in college. I come home from college, and he tells me this epic tale of a teacher that he has at Century Community College. The man's name was Richard Dick. That's correct, friends. His name was Dick Dick. At which point you think a name can actually ruin you. And this, I mean, with a name like Dick Dick, you got to do a little more investigating, right? So he's telling me these stories about this fellow. And this guy is just a classic character. I mean, he's very short, the best comb over you have ever seen, sweet, like 70s uh, Coke bottle glasses. What was the recent film, Um, the Hustler one? I mean, yeah, what's it called? American Hustle. Uh, that, that whole deal, like sweet Coke bottle glasses, and I'm not kidding you, this is, this is how he spoke. Now, class, today we'll be studying the lower 40,000 feet of the atmosphere, which is called the what? The what? <laughs> the, the troposphere. The troposphere. T-R-O-P-O-S-P-H-E-R-E. As such, what happens in the troposphere, class? All kinds of things, and we'll learn them today, will we not? Will we not? I'm not even kidding you. So my brother, he's telling me about this guy, and I'm like, I have got to experience, I have got to see this for myself. So I come home on Thanksgiving vacation, and Laura and I went to the class. I make, I exaggerate a lot, but you can, you can take it to the bank, okay? She will corroborate every detail of this story. So we go, and we're sitting there, and it is not a joke. It is not a lie. I mean, he is everything he has been made out to be. So there he is in the front, and it's like a, it's, it's been a, it had been a warm winter at that point, right? I think it may have been Christmas break when we came home, because he goes, he's like, now, class, we've been having an unseasonably warm winter, have we not? Have we not? As such, we're loving it, aren't we? Yes, we are, but who doesn't love the warm winter? The snowmobile dealers, they can't sell their snowmobiles. Names matter. Names matter a lot. Dick, Dick. I had a friend in college named Kyle Kelly. I always thought that was a little odd. You know, he was a nice guy. That's not nearly as bad as Richard Dick, but, you know, Philip Phillips, right? The American Idol guy. Who does that? Philip Phillips. Let's face it. Names can, they can make or break you at times. And, and I think that the same, well, I would argue, I would submit that the same is true in the story of God. Names mean a lot. They mean a great deal. They're more than just a name. Think Adam, Adam, 
He comes from the Adama, the land, the earth, the ground. So this man has the name. In his name is the very source of his being that he was created from in the story. And he's to care and tend for the very thing that's in his name. Eve means the source of life. Hello? Uh, Jacob, right? Jacob means heal. Remember what happens in the story when he comes out? What's he grabbing? His brother's heel. And who wants to be named heel, right? He's just kind of a schlep. He's kind of a deceiver, a little trickster his whole life. And then his name changes to Israel, which means one who wrestles with God and with people and is not overcome. Come on now. I'll take that name change. Names mean a great deal. One author says, to, says it this way, ancient peoples understood that a name expressed the essence or identity of a person. According to Proverbs 22, a good name is more desirable than great riches. In the biblical world, a good name meant, that, meant more than even a good reputation because it identified the character of the person carrying it. So we're all given a name. Our parents gave us a name. But what we're really talking about here is more than that. It's sort of the name behind the name, as it were. You've been called all kinds of things in your life, for good or for ill. Some of them define you. Some of them you've let define you. Some of them could define you. Some of them are true of you. Some of them are not. Names mean a great deal. I've told a bit of this story uh, this is a picture, I won't go into great detail, but this is a photo kind of of, a, of an experience that I had in Israel uh, last fall that really is a, a picture story of a journey that I've been on. Uh, because oftentimes names come with blessings, don't they? For boys, it comes from your father. For, for girls, it comes from your mother. We are given a name, but more than that, you're given a blessing that calls out who you are and names what's inside of you. And so for a lot of us, for good reason, we struggle to know and live in and identify our own names because of whatever relationships we've had with our parents. This is a story of a guy, Moses, who journeys to know what his name is. So as we begin this series, that's what I want to do. I want to, t I want to pull out a couple of names that sort of rise up in this story that really become important as we navigate the text and the stories that, that the text has in them. So uh, Exodus chapter 2, uh, where we were, but just a little bit further, we'll read uh, the birth of Moses. It says this, verse 1, Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could not hide him any longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. And then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen. Then the Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw that the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it and saw the baby. He was crying, and she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. Then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. And so the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me, and I will pay you. All the moms in the room are like, I would take that deal. 
<laughs> Paid to raise your own children, which would really compensate for a lot of the ballyhoo and tomfoolery, right? At any rate, when the child grew older and took him to the Pharaoh's daughter, he became her son, and she named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Often in the scriptures, the name of a person ends up being a key to the role that they play in the story. Uh, think of this example. The word Noah appears twice in the scriptures, once in the book of Numbers and once in the book of Genesis. And there's one small difference in how you pronounce the two names. One is Noah, one is Noah. The first one is in Numbers, and it's a woman. She's the daughter, one of five daughters, and her name means shaky girl or lady wanderer. <laughs> you can kind of see where that one's headed, right? Noah, the one in Genesis, the one that we know, Russell Crowe, his name means... Coming to rest, usually after a period of unrest or mobility. Right. Like you do. Moses is given an Egyptian name. Right? Reread this story. It's a, it's a Jewish story. It's written by Hebrew people, for Hebrew people. But Moses is, is an Egyptian. He, he grows up as an Egyptian. So he's given an Egyptian name, and the narrator of our text takes that Egyptian name and gives it its Hebrew equivalent, which is what we now know as Moses, or Moish, or Mosa, depending on how you're pronouncing it. So let's get this straight. Pharaoh's daughter, the king of Egypt, his daughter, finds a Hebrew baby boy in the weeds, takes the boy, gives it a Hebrew, or, uh, an Egyptian name, and the Hebrew equivalent to that name happens to mean to be drawn out of the water. And this child happens to become the person who leads the people of God out of the, the Pharaoh, of the daughter, who's the son, ironic, right? Out of Egypt through what? Water. I mean, you just can't make this up. People say the Bible's boring, and then it's kind of flat, it's flat land, right? And I think it's because we don't get in the story. But if, imagine, if you will, you're 3,000 years ago, you're sitting around, and this is an oral tradition, and somebody's telling this story, the one we're reading right now. And they say that the Pharaoh's daughter goes into the weeds, and she finds this baby boy, and he's a Hebrew. And she gives him this name, which happens to mean son of in, in, Egypt, in Egyptian, but also actually means to be drawn out of the water. And everybody around's like, oh, because <laughs> they totally know what's coming, right? They're like, oh, of course it would be to be drawn out of the water. It's Moshe. It's, it's our man. It's not boring. It's actually beautiful storytelling. I mean, cue music, right? Any, uh, any, any uh, what's that show? So you think you can dance? You know, Nigel, cue music, please. Cue the, the foreshadow music, you know, like da 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 And then they say the name of the guy. Oh, of course it would be that. Great, great storytelling. Unbelievable. So these are the names. Moses to be drawn from the water and then becomes an instrument of redemption through his own watery experience. This is a journey of a guy who has to learn how to identify and hear and live in his own name. So I'll just pause for a second. Do you know your name? And I'm not asking a question about what did your parents name you. This is sort of the thing behind the thing. Do you know who you are? Not what people called you. That wasn't true of you. But that has somehow defined you. 
But do you know your name? The one that God has put in you from the very beginning. The one that is the essence of who you are. The good, the beauty, the light that is in you. Do you know your name? It's a simple question, but game changer in the, in the text. Exodus 1.1 says, These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt. So we have Moses and we have Egypt. Plays a serious role in this story. Egypt literally means the narrow place. And if you kind of do some of the etymological work on this word in Hebrew, it, it, you get to things like uh, it's, it's constricted, it's blocked up or bound. You, you can't see or you can't move. This is Egypt. And gang, you've got to remember that Egypt is a place, but it's more than a place in the story. Egypt is the superpower of the earth, right? It's the place with all the power, all the influence, all the culture, all the art, all the, everything that's happening. It is the center of the universe. It is Rome. It is America. It is, and it's the narrow place. I find that very fascinating that in this story, this place that's this superpower in its day, responsible for everything that's anything, they had the most cutting-edge technology. Everything was there in Egypt. Think of the pyramids. Think of the mummies. I mean, they're still around. But I'm not. Shh. It's, but it's called the narrow place. Now, play along. This is not a rhetorical question. When I say the narrow place, what comes to mind? Just shout it out. Skinny. Yeah. What else? A tunnel? All, say again hallways yep limited birth canal somebody in the first hour said it and it was a woman and i was like yes do you want to preach come on up yeah the narrow place yikes what else say again yeah Right? Constricted. I heard something up here. Shadow. Darkness. Oppressive. Yeah. I think we're getting to it. Liminal. Good word. Great word. I want to suggest that Egypt is not only a place, but it is actually a spiritual state of being. When the Bible says Egypt, when, when a Hebrew is reading Egypt in the, in the story... It's a, it's, a, it's a place marker for us that sort of, you know, Middle East, Uprising, Nile River, Delta, that's what we think. But Egypt in Hebrew actually means something. And so it means these are the names of the sons of those who wrestle with God and people and who are not overcome, who went to the narrow place with heel. That's how they're reading it. So it's not just a place but it is something far greater than that. Think Babylon in the book of Revelation, right? It's a city in the Middle East. But it is so much more than that. It's everything that stands against the kingdom of God. It's everything that stands against the lamb. It's the lion. It's the dragon. It's, the Bible calls it an, an adulterer, right? It's this system that oppresses and holds people down. That's Babylon. It's Babylon, but it's Babylon. It's Egypt, but it is Egypt, gang. You tracking? So when we read these things, we have to like, try to understand what's being said. 
the invitation of the Exodus is not just to leave Egypt and go to this other land where there's you know, milk and honey flowing. But it's to, it's to leave a spiritual state of being, to be invited to cross over into what God is inviting you to and, and, and from. It's to trust that Yahweh is leading you from a narrow place where God cannot be seen to a land that's filled with possibility and life and light. It's not just something that people did 3,000 years ago. Gang, this is the beauty of this story. It continues to live on and on and on. There's this text called the Haggadah, and it says that each person is obliged to see him or herself as actually coming out of Egypt. Now, today, you, me, Jews, still read this text today. So when we read this story, and, and when you read the Gospels, for heaven's sakes, it's everywhere. Jesus and the Gospel writers are making Exodus references all over the place. Jesus is the new Moses. In Mark, he's led out onto a cliff to the people who want to kill him. They want to throw him over the cliff. And what happens? It says that he passes through the crowd. Come on! That's the end of the story. Why? Because Mark knows that you know the Exodus story, and that Moses passed through the Red Sea with the people, and on the other side was a new kind of life. So I would say to you this morning, what does it mean for you to leave Egypt? Even if you've never been there, literally, spiritually, what does it mean to be in Egypt? Maybe it's an addiction. Maybe it's a habit or a pattern. Maybe it's your credit card. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's comparison. Maybe it's self-image. These are the place, these are the narrow places where God cannot be seen. Where there is darkness. There's this, there's this line in the, in, the, in the Exodus where there was the plague of darkness and it said that like you, a brother could not know or see his brother. That's Egypt. These are the names. Moses, Egypt, one more. Exodus 3, 14. We'll do 13 and 14. And gang, if I could, I would have hired a band. I would have hired like circus performers for this, like whistles clanging, bells ringing. I would have jumped, I would have come in from the ceiling on this one right here, like swing in, you know, fanfare, the whole deal, because this is this passage right here is like I mean, it is the moment in the story, okay? So uh, just to try to give you a sense of, like, what's happening here. I'll read it, and you'll be like, oh, okay, I've heard that before. But this is a big one, all right? You got to know this. Verse 13, and God said, or, or and Moses said to God, suppose I go to the Israelites, and I say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? Great question, great question. What should I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. Some of your texts might say, I am what I am. Enigmatic at best, right? Thank you. Very clear. Appreciate that. I'll tell them, I am sent me. Who? You? No, I am. Okay, let me start over. Eye, asher, eye. 
is the actual Hebrew. And if it means I am what I am, then everything that follows in my life, in our lives, in terms of how we study and understand God and the Bible makes perfect sense. Let me try to illustrate. When I went to undergraduate, I went to a Christian school, and I took a class called Systematic Theology. Has anyone ever taken this class before? A few of you in the room. Okay, here's how I learned about God. Not even joking you, this is, there was a graph with like layers built upon the Bible because it's the Bible. It's inerrant. It's infallible. You can't poke it. Don't prod it. Don't ask any questions because it's the Bible. It's the foundation. You don't mess with that one, right? Amen. Yes, thank you very, very much. And then you move up to God, the Trinity, right? We're Trinitarians. We understand God to be Father, Son, and Spirit, la, la, la. Anthropology, uh, what does it mean to be human? Who are we as humans? Hamardiology for 500 Torah points. Does anyone... Somebody got it in the first hour. You're smarter than you think you are. The study of Hamars. Yes, well done. Yes, <laughs> yes, it's happening on Gaza Strip right now. Hamars, Hamas. No, uh, no. Hamardiology is the study of sin. And of course, evangelicals are really concerned about this one, right? We got to know Why, what's going on here. How did this happen? Hamardiology. Then we have Christology, self-explanatory. Soteriology is how is one saved. Pneumatology, of course, is the study of the spirit. Well done. Pneumonia. Yes. It's lungs, breath, wind. Ecclesiology. Ecclesia is Greek for called out ones. That's church. And then, of course, eschatology, because everybody wants to know the answer to that question. That's why it's the biggest on the screen. So this is how I learned how to, uh, how, how I learned to know God. Systematic theology. This is how I learned how to learn it in seminary. Much different. Oh, eschatology. I'm sorry. Study of the end times. Eschaton. That which happens later. Good question. Much different, though, in seminary. TS 101, which dealt with the Bible, anthropology, and the first three. TS 201, which dealt with the second three, as you can imagine. TS 301, and then, of course, you're ready to be a pastor. And, they're given, and you give, you're given a tie. <laughs> now, of course, of course, gang, I'm joking. I'm pushing a little bit. I'm, pro, I'm poking. But if God's name is I am what I am, then this makes perfect sense, right? Because we can, in some ways, quantify, measure, systematize, uh, calculate, observe, reflect, diagram, study this God. Because I am what I am. This and no more. I am what I am. It's static. It doesn't move. It's unchangeable, immutable, irrefutable. All the things that people say about God. It makes perfect sense. Here's the million-dollar problem. It's not what the text says. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes this drives me batty, where I read something and I'm like, you have got to be kidding me. It says that? Like, yeah, that's actually what it says. So just by reading the text, it blows up all sorts of really, really important categories. My wife and I have these conversations, and Laura, she gets so mad. She's like, why do we not know that? She says it just like that. <laughs> Here's the million-dollar problem. It's not actually what the text says. So what does the text say? The best rendering of Ehe Asher Ehe is I will be 
what I will be. Now, it may not sound very different, but let's just live here for a second. I am what I am. If this is the God that we know, then our knowing becomes largely a cognitive exercise, primarily. And I will say that, where we dissect, look at, inject with formaldehyde, systematize, quantify, measure, construct. I am what I am. But actually, when God is asked, what is your name? What is your essence? Who are you? God does not say, I am what I am, but I will be what I will be. We've got a noun We've got a verb. What do you know about verbs? Play along. They're moving. Action. Ongoing. Progressive. Emerging. Whoa! 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 Before you quarter me and send my members to the four corners of the earth, is that what we're saying about God? That God is moving, active, emerging, progressing, responding. That can, uh, but God's unchangeable, irrefutable, immutable. He doesn't move. He doesn't change. He's the same yesterday, as today, as tomorrow, as forever. But is that what the text tells you? Is that what God says about God? How interesting. How fascinating. What does it mean to say that God is a verb? What does it mean to say that God is a relationship to be experienced? Not an object that we observe. I mean, come on, come on, come on. Game changer, right? Nahum Sarna, brilliant Hebrew author, says this. And this, so this gets to what does it mean to know? The Hebrew word is yada. He says this, in the biblical conception, knowledge is not, essenti not essentially or even primarily, sorry about the spelling, rooted in the intellect or mental activity. Rather, it is more experiential and embedded in the emotions so that it may encompass such qualities as, get this, contact, intimacy, concern, relatedness, and mutuality. To know is to be connected, intimate, concerned, related, mutual. And the converse it says in Exodus that Pharaoh knew not Yahweh is to be is synonymous with disassociation, indifference, alienation, and estrangement. It culminates in callous disregard for another's humanity. So knowledge is not just two plus two or God is Trinity. To know is something far deeper. So let's just tease this out as we close. What does it mean to say that God, in essence, is a verb and not a noun? This is what the text says. All I'm doing is reading the text here. What does it mean to say that God is an ongoing action or an emergent property? Something like you and me that is unfolding and responding and reacting to what actually happens. And there's this bizarre paradox that we sing about. Great is thy faithfulness, that you don't change. Your love is always present. It, is, it remains, and yet you are a verb. Micah was not 
the same Micah two years ago as I am today, and yet I'm Micah. Why, is, why do we have such a hard time with that? Is it possible that God's heart changes, that God's heart moves, that God's heart responds? I know that this is a game changer. I know that I'm messing with categories here, and one of the most important ones. This is like right at the bottom, and I've sort of walked up to the bear and, you know, like poked it right in the rear. Nobody likes to get poked in the rear. The entire system is built on this thing, and I've got a pry bar here, right? But I'm just reading the text. Ehe asher ehe. It does not say, I am what I am. It says, I will be what I will be. Now, to me, gang, this God sounds like a ton of fun. I mean, like, you never know what's coming next, right? Coming down the pike, because it's a relationship. It's active. It's real. It moves. It breathes. It's, it's not boring and static and lives in cathedrals. No, no, no. That cannot contain it. This actually, to me, feels alive and like invigorating and breathtaking, like a sunset or a beautiful picture. Picture. Maybe, maybe, just maybe, ehye asher, ehye, I will be what I will be. Maybe this is why Jesus gives us bread and wine as something to come back to, something that we participate in, something that in some way, shape, and form, like has energy, a pulse, right? I'm not saying that grapes have a heartbeat, or that, but like there was something that made these grapes grow and something that made these grains grow in the earth, and now they're bread and wine. Maybe this is why Jesus says, when you take of this bread and you eat it, and you ingest it and you take it in, remember that the God that you're being invited into is not a static box, but an experience that you could never actually possibly imagine. When you drink of this cup, it is a new covenant, yes, but remember that these grapes and that which made them grow is beyond anything you could ever imagine and fathom. Come to this table and remind yourself that this is the God that you're being invited into a relationship with. So I'll ask John Mark and the band to come and we'll receive the Lord's table. If you remember the story at the end of Jesus' life, he's in a room with his friends and he says, this, is, this bread is my body broken for you. Whenever you eat of it, eat in remembrance of me. And he takes the cup. He says, this is a covenant. A new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. And then he says, and I will not eat or drink of this meal again until I eat it and drink it with you anew in my father's kingdom, which is something that a, a groom would say to his betrothed bride. And so it's as if Jesus says, will you have me? Will you take me? Will you be mine and can I be yours? And so we come to this table again and again and again because we forget we forget amidst all the craziness exactly what, what's, ha what's happening here and 
is it possible that there's far more than we see just below the surface? And a God who says, oh, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Who breathed life and heals and restores. Just says, come. Come to the table. So, let me offer a word of prayer. If you're serving communion, I'll ask you to come. There's bread, red wine, white grape juice. There's gluten-free options upstairs. We'll invite you to take the bread and dip it in the cup. So if you're serving, come and I'll offer a word of prayer. And then as you feel led, come forward. God, as we come to this table, we are reminded that this is a story that continues to happen. That there are people who need to leave Egypt. That we, in this room, may need to leave in Egypt. That there are people who need to learn, to know, to recognize, to hear, to know, not just know, but to know their names. Who you've called them to be, who you have made them to be essence of what you've put inside of them that's being invited out be reminded that you are a God who is far bigger than anything we could ever imagine that which is the most beautiful that we can fathom doesn't begin to describe your beauty that which is the most lovely doesn't begin to tap into your love and so God we come Humbly we come and we say yes, 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 yes to who you are and what you invite us to. So we come. So one of the most favorite things that I get to do as a pastor is when the little kids come up. If you're new to Awaken, uh, I give them a stick with honey on it and I say, may God's word be like honey on your lips, which is what the rabbis used to say to the little children. And the responses I get are just dynamite. Things like, I know. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) This morning one kid goes, oh, that's yummy. (laughs) So awaken, may you Leave Egypt if you have to, if you need to. May you leave the narrow places where there is darkness and God cannot be seen. May you learn to hear and know your name and what is in you that God has put in you, all that is beautiful and lovely and light. And may you hear the call of an invitation from a God who's on the move. Grace and peace. Love you guys. You can find us online at www.awakencommunity.com or on Facebook at www.facebook.com backslash community or on Twitter at Awaken Community. See you next time.